Romans 11, which um, can be, and I think is, confusing. Uh, there's a lot of things going on here that are hard to make sense of, and I feel like we've said that a lot in Romans, uh, because this is, uh, you know, we've talked about this, but like this is Paul's um, it's just his theology, right? He's never met the church in Rome. He's never been there when he's writing this. So he has a general idea of who these people are, but he doesn't address specific issues like you see in 1 Corinthians where he names people for the things that they're doing. He is just writing to a church who he knows is, is giving everything to be faithful, and he's giving them just a basic theology, um, now, basic to Paul is confusing to us, I think. That's, at least that's true for me. Um, is that he is extremely deep, and he does, he does all of these um, sort of really long logical arguments that he's building, and he's building, and he's building, and he's building. And so, um, as I've said every week, we can't just take what's in front of us without everything that's come before. This is not a standalone argument. Chapter 11 is not, does not stand by itself. This is building on all of the stuff he has been saying, um, and especially 9, 10, and 11, which are one kind of cohesive unit within Romans. He is trying to build this argument about who is Israel, what is God doing with Israel, and so this comes because of chapter 8. So Paul makes some unbelievably fantastic statements in chapter 8. I mean, it's so comforting. Romans 8, 1, right? There is therefore now no condemnation in Christ Jesus. That is a huge comfort to us. This is a promise that God has made to us. Nobody can revoke it. Nobody can delete it. It will never go away. And then he gives us, right, the, the golden chain, right? Those whom I foreknew, I predestined. Those whom I predestined, I called. Those whom I called, I justified. Those whom I justified, I glorified. So he, these, are, these have to happen. Those whom he foreknew will be glorified, right? They're all, in the, they're all in the past tense. And so Paul is making these statements of God's promises that nobody can destroy. And then he goes to chapter 9, and the assumption is somebody has come to Paul and said, Okay, if God's promises are so secure, what about Israel? God made tons of promises to Israel in the Old Testament that they are his people, they are his nation, they're going to have a chosen land. It doesn't seem like those things are happening. So if God's promises are so ironclad, what is going on with the nation of Israel? And so that's what we start with in chapter 9, and he continues this argument, right? And he tells us at the beginning of chapter 9 that not all of Israel belong to Israel. So not every ethnic Jewish person is actually a part of what God would say is true Israel. They are not all saved. That's what's happening. Some have rejected faith in, the, in lieu of, and they're trying to take on righteousness by works. That's what they're trying to do. And so Paul is making this argument. You think, right, he's writing to his Jewish brothers, you think everybody who can name Abraham as their father is saved just because Abraham is their father. And Paul says, no, this is not the reality. And he gives us those examples, right? God chose Isaac and not Ishmael. He, chose, he chooses Jacob and not Esau. And so he tells us, look, not every son of Abraham is a son of Abraham. Not every Israelite is an Israelite. And so this is... The idea that he is putting forth, that he is trying to explain over and over and over, right? And so he's just going deeper and deeper. Chapter 10, we saw this, right? That God is allowing the Gentiles into the church to be his people so that he would make Israel jealous. 
And then that culmination at the end of chapter 10, what a verse. Right? God doesn't do this just so that the people, will, that he can make them jealous and watch and laugh. But he, in verse 21, then says, all the day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. He's got his arms open for them to come back. He brings the Gentiles in so that they would be jealous, so that they would want to come back to his presence. But that can only happen by faith and not by works. And so this is where we come to at the beginning of chapter 11. And in good fashion, right, Paul is asking questions and then answering them. That's what he does. He knows the questions that people are asking, and so he poses them, and then he comes up, he explains his answer. So then his question is, has God rejected his people? Now his answer to this question is really, really important. Because it actually, no, we're not going to get like into deep eschatology, but it actually, it helps us to understand what we think of in the end of the world. When is Jesus coming back? What does that look like? What are all the details surrounding that, right? I was reading Sproul this week, and he said, there is a temptation amongst Christians to read our Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other and try and make them fit. How do the, how do the things that we're seeing here correlate to the things that we're reading here in the newspaper what is happening Wait, oh oh paul says this in in revelation and that must mean this maybe it does maybe it doesn't right and so how we answer this question has god rejected his people is really really important to how we understand more than just this question but a lot of other things that are going on in the bible and I, I just, I love Paul's answer because it's so clear, like there's no way to misunderstand what he is saying. Has God rejected his people? By no means. Absolutely not. God has not rejected his people. And his reason is also crystal clear. Why does he say that it is true that God has not rejected Israel? Because he, Paul, an Israelite, has been saved. That is his answer. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. Now the tribe of Benjamin, if you remember from the, right, from the Jewish civil war, ten tribes create the nation of Israel, two tribes create the nation of Judah, which is Judah, Benjamin, right? That's where Jerusalem is. He is saying not only is he Jewish, but he is like ultra-Jewish, right? He is like, he stood with Jerusalem. He wouldn't do what Israel was doing. He didn't go to the north. His tribe stayed with Jerusalem. His tribe stayed where it was supposed to, did what it was supposed to. I mean, generally speaking, right? We, we know that that's not ultimately true. There was a lot of kings who did a lot of really dumb stuff. But he is trying to make the point, he's not just an Israelite. He is a, as devout of an Israelite as you can imagine a man being. And so his answer is, if I am being saved as an Israelite, as a member of the tribe of Judah, I mean, uh, Benjamin, then God is not rejecting his people. It's not because every ethnic Jew is being saved. That's not his reasoning. He says, because I am being saved. Therefore, God has not rejected his people. There are Israelites who are being saved. They have faith in God. They have rejected righteousness through the law. And so he, just on his own, the fact that he is standing, that is 
his reasoning. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Right? This is what he says in verse 2. The Israelites whom God foreknew, they are being saved by faith. Therefore, God has not rejected his people. Not every ethnic Jew is being saved, but some are. There is a remnant that's been held back. So this is the new reality. It was true then, and it's true now, too, that many of the Jewish people have rejected Jesus. They don't see him as a Messiah. But just because the majority, or just because a lot of Jewish people have rejected Jesus, doesn't mean that God has forsaken his promises. So what hope is there now for the Jewish people? Well, Paul gives us, a, gives us an example in Elijah. He says, you know what the scriptures say about Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel. He says, Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am, alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So, so too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Now, I think it's worth going back to read this firsthand account. Because there are so many details. Like, if you know one story about Elijah, you know this one, right? He goes up to the mountain. There's all these prophets of Baal, right? They make the, they make the um, sacrifice, and then, poof, God blows it up, and there's just nothing, right? Um, this, is the, this is one story, I think, that we're probably all familiar with. But let's go to 1 Kings 18. The story begins, at least the part that we're interested in to some degree, it begins in verse 20. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel, and he gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people, and he said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, then follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. So Elijah said to the people, I even I only am left as a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. So let two bulls be given to us. Let them choose one bull from themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare, prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your Lord, you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. So then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many. Call upon the name of your God, and put no fire, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given to them, and they prepared it, and they called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made, and at noon Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is God. Maybe he is musing, or he's relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud, and they cut themselves, as was their custom, with swords and lances until the blood gushed out from, um, from upon them. And, at mid and as midday passed, 
They raved on until the time of the offering. Um, sorry. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. Just take that in for a second, right? No one listened, no one paid attention to them. Why? It's Baal. He's not God. He wasn't going to do anything. There was never a chance that he was going to do anything. And then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him, and he prepared, he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. And Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the son of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with these stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seahs of seed. And he put the wood in order uh, and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it onto the burnt offering and onto the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at that time of the offering, of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all of these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. And then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust, and it licked up all the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces, and they said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah to them, Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. And Elijah said to Ahab, go up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of the rushing rain. And so Ahab went up to eat and to drink, and Elijah went up to the mount, top of Mount Carmel. He bowed himself down on the earth, and he put his face between, face between his knees. He said to his servant, go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up, and he looked, and he said, there's nothing. And he said, go again seven times. And on the seventh time, he said, behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And he said, go up and say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stop you. And in a little while, the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. And at the hand of, uh, at the, hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garment, and he ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. Now Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all of the prophets with the sword. And then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. So he was afraid and he rose and he ran for his life and he came to Beersheba which belongs to Judah and he left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came and sat down under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. He lay down, and he slept under the broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he took, and behold, and there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. He ate, and he drank, and he lay down again. The angel came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. 
And he arose and he ate and he drank and he went in strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. There he came to a cave and he lodged in it and behold, the word of the Lord came to him and he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword and I, even I only, am left and they seek my life to take it away. He said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in a cloak, and he went out, and he stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him, and he said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, and Abel Hamilah, you shall anoint to be the prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elijah put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Okay, I know it's a lot. But this is the story that Paul is referencing. And there are, there's a lot of really, really good stuff to learn from this. You see, Elijah thinks that he's the only one left. He thinks he's alone. He thinks he's the only one who is believing in the truth. And God shows him something very different. So the first thing is that even the best of God's people get discouraged. What is, where does the angel find Elisha? Elijah, sorry. Where does the angel find Elijah? Pouting under a tree, ready to die. Why? Because King Ahab told Jezebel what he did. She says, I'm going to kill you. And he says, well, just go ahead and kill me, God. None can be done about this. He just watched one of the greatest miracles in all of human history. I mean, I don't... I would give most... That was. And the next day, Elijah's like, there's this crazy woman queen coming after me. I guess I'm done. The, I just watched God explode the offering and blow that up and kill all of the, of the prophets of Baal, but this lady is after me. I must be done. Even the best of God's people get discouraged get, and discouraged over really silly things. Right? If God can do that, he can stop Jezebel's heart at the snap of his fingers. If she had come after him, do you really think that God was going to let her kill him? But he falls into despair because he forgets. He allows his sight to overshadow his faith. 
This is why Paul tells us, right? He, he puts faith and sight against each other, right? Not faith and reason, as most people in our culture want to say. Faith and sight. Why? Because you know something is true. God has made a promise to you, but you look around, and this doesn't seem true. I don't see any evidence that God, what he has said to me is true. I look around the world, and it doesn't seem true. What do you, well, I guess God must be wrong, because my sight is far greater than the promises of God. No, that's the opposite, right? Paul says, then get more faith. Pray and ask God to strengthen your faith, so that when you look around and you see things that don't seem true, you ignore that, and you believe in God's promises. C.S. Lewis talked about this when he talked about having surgery. It was a perfect example. He was going in for an appendectomy, right? Some easiest procedure, even back like in the 40s when this was happening to him. Even then, it was like the safest thing in the world. People don't generally get sick or die from an appendectomy, right? They can just, some people have done it on themselves. It's so easy to do. He says, it's easy. I know the facts. I know the statistics. I know that I'm going to be fine. I know that it's safe. But when I'm laying on that table and they're about to put the mask on me for anesthesia, I am terrified. Because the things that I see don't match with the things that I know in my head. This is how we operate sometimes. We're like Elijah. We watch the greatest miracle probably in the Old Testament, maybe other than the parting of the Red Sea, and then we go sit under a tree and say, woe is me, there's one person coming after me. I guess you better just kill me now. Second thing is, never deny the truth, no matter how alone you feel in it. You see, Elijah thought he was completely alone. But God had saved a remnant from him. Now, 7,000 people in a town of, what, 2,000? That sounds like a lot. There's several million people in Israel at this time. There's only 7,000. So it's not like they have the majority, right? It's a very small remnant of men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. But God is still sustaining them. Do you think that God chose out Israel to let them all perish, to let them all die and worship a false god? Elijah thought it was bleak. He doesn't know what's going on. Again, this is true for us. You look around the world, you see, you watch, just watch the news for a day, and then it feels like everything is crashing on, in on us, right? Everything is doom and gloom. And it feels like there are no more Christians, no matter which political side you're on. It's just, where are the Christians? Where are the people who believe in God? There is a remnant, Right? God has his church. He is not going to let it go. He is sustaining his people no matter how bad it looks around us. God is doing his work, and this leads us to the third thing, is that that is God's job and not yours and not mine. Elijah says, this is a, man, what a, what a statement. This, these, are, these are, he's echoing God's words as if they belong to him. I have been very jealous for the Lord. That's a word and that's a term that we hear about God when he looks at Israel, when they're serving other gods. God is jealous over his people. Elijah saying, I am jealous over your nation. What? <laughs> that's pretty arrogant, right? You, you probably shouldn't be speaking like that. That is not his job. 
His job is not to be jealous and to be trying to keep that remnant, to be trying to keep the nation of Israel faithful. That's God's job, and he's doing it. And it's not Elijah's job. It's not our job to be doing that within the church, right? We don't, Awanas is a great program, but we don't have Awanas so that we can hope to keep our church alive. We do Awanas because it is a means by which we speak the truth. This church is in God's hands. You and I don't have to scheme and figure out ways to keep it alive, to keep it going, to keep a remnant of faithful people here. God is doing that. We need to be faithful in what God has called us to do. And that leads me to the fourth point that we see from this, is that Elijah is just sitting under the tree, and what does God say to him? Now, all we have is the words. We don't have the inflection. He says, and do you think, he says, what are you doing here? Now, do you think, oh, Elijah, what are you doing here? Do you think, I I thought you were somewhere else. I didn't mean, I didn't expect to find you here. Or, Elijah, what, what are you doing? What are you doing here? You're hiding from this woman? Like, the next thing that he says to him, you have stuff to do. Get out of the cave. Get out from under the tree. Stop hiding It's not your job to figure all of this out. I have given you tasks, and here you are hiding from the enemy. Stop that nonsense. Get up and go and do what you're supposed to do, right? Go and anoint these men as kings. Go and anoint these people as as prophets who are going to come behind you. Stop worrying about all the things that you can't control. Are you going to get killed? That's, that's on God, right? That's his responsibility to save Elijah's life if that's what he wants to do. To save the nation of Israel, that's God's job. Elijah, get up and go and do the things I've told you to do. It's really simple. Go and preach the truth. Go and share the gospel. Go and tell people about Jesus. The rest of it is out of our hands. It is not your responsibility to convince the person to be a Christian. Tell them the truth. Tell them about Jesus and let God do what he does. Don't try and take the responsibility on yourself that doesn't belong to you, right? Just do the thing that God has called you to do. Go out, share the gospel, Preach the truth. We're not careful. We'll preach First Kings. Let's get back. Let's go back to Romans. Sorry, it's just such a good story. There's so many. There's so many wonderful things in there. So Paul comes full circle, right? The people are asking about the nation of Israel. Has God rejected them? Paul gives us Elijah as the example. And he says God has not rejected them. Look at Elijah. Look at what God was doing during that time. He has saved back a remnant. Now at this time, Paul sees this firsthand. The church in Rome maybe doesn't. Think about Rome in comparison to all of the other cities that Paul writes to, right? Most of those are in what we know as modern-day Greece and Turkey. Rome is across the planet from them. They're not interacting with one another. But there are lots and lots of Jewish people, right? In the book of Acts, James, who is an elder of the church in Jerusalem, says there are thousands upon thousands of Jewish people in the church who are believing in Jesus, who see him as the Messiah. There is a remnant So he answers their question, and then he asks another. Verse 7. So if there is this remnant, 
What's happening? Right? If God is preserving his people, why are there so few Jewish people? Why is the remnant so small? And then he gives this answer in verse 7, right? He says, what then? What should we do? What, how should we understand what is going on? This is his answer. Israel has failed to obtain what it was seeking. And the elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. So the question is about the reality that he has just expressed. There is a remnant. It's based on grace, not on works. But how is it possible that there are so many who don't believe? Well, he says, Israel has failed to obtain. Now, I really do, the ESV is my favorite translation. But like, I, I don't know, I'm no Greek scholar, but I looked it up. The verb seeking, it shouldn't be in the past tense. I, I, I hesitate to like go against, you know, I know there was like hundreds of people who did this. But there's no, there's no doubt when you look at the word that it is in present active, which is really important. It means that Israel has failed to obtain not what it was seeking, but what it is seeking. They are still looking for it. This is the state of Israel at the time that Paul is writing this. They are looking for the Messiah. They are looking for a way to find righteousness. And they are seeking it. But they were hardened. There were some who found it, right? Israel failed to obtain what it is seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. So the verb hardening is in the past tense. It means that God has done something. Well, let's get, not get ahead of ourselves. Somebody has hardened them, right? There is a hardening that has happened in the past, and that is the thing that is stopping them from finding what they are seeking. They are actively looking for it. They are actively seeking this thing, but they have been hardened. Now we ask the question, okay, who did it? Who has hardened them? Did they harden themselves? Were they given the chance and they just said, nope, I reject God. I will not believe in him. Or did God harden them? Glad you asked. It's right here, right? Verse 8. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor. Eyes that would not see. Ears that would not hear. Down to this very day. They are seeking righteousness. They cannot find it because they have been hardened by whom? God, right there. God gave it to them, a spirit of stupor. Now, I don't use that word ever, um, and so I kind of like had an idea of what it was in my mind, but I thought, you know, I, I should look it up. I don't, it's far worse than what I thought it was. Um, the definition is this, near unconsciousness, insensibility. God gave them this. They have a spirit of unconsciousness, of insensibility, of an inability to understand who he is. They are seeking righteousness. It's right in front of them, right? We saw that in chapter 10. You don't have to go up into heaven and you don't have to go to the abyss. Christ is right in front of you. He is available to everyone. And there are people who are missing it. Why? Because they have been hardened by God. They have this spirit of stupor. They have, God gave them eyes that would not see. He gave them ears that would not hear. And it's happening this very day. Now, I think we're all smart enough to realize they're not blind and deaf physically. 
They have eyes that cannot see the truth. They have ears that cannot hear the truth or understand it. And their lack of understanding is because God has hardened them. Now it's important to note here and what we saw back in chapter 9, this whole idea around God's predestination and all of these things, just because he is hardening them in this moment doesn't mean that he hardens them forever. We got the, the example of Pharaoh, right? We don't know that God hardened Pharaoh's heart until the moment in which he drowned. There may have been a point where he could repent and believe. I don't know. We don't have the details, right? I don't know how long the hardening happens, but there is a hardening that is happening within the nation of Israel, and God is doing it. And if you don't like that, don't argue with me. I, I, it's, I don't know. It's as clear as can be. I don't see any other way to understand this of what we're looking at right here other than the elect obtained what they were seeking, the rest did not because God has hardened them. He has not given them understanding. He has given them eyes that cannot see, ears that cannot hear. And then we look at these last couple of verses. And to me, at first, I was so confused by them. But then when I started looking and digging and thinking, man, like this, this is like the crux of the matter. This is where the gospel shines forth um, beyond anything else that we've seen, I think, in the passage. And it is, let their tables become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I, again, when I read, what are you talking about? Tables and snares, I don't understand what this is about. And then this idea of table. So what do we put on our table? A feast, a blessing, Right? So I'm assuming that this is what it's talking about. I'm assuming that when he quotes from David that, that this is what's happening, that the table represents a blessing, that when you sit down for Thanksgiving, what do you do? You sit around a table with a bunch of food on it, right? And we, we recognize that we have more than just the physical, right? I don't think that, that David is talking about the physical blessing of food, but that all of the blessings were heaped on Israel. And this we saw back in chapter 9, right? At the beginning, Paul says, the beginning of chapter 9, I think it's verse 4, maybe 5, he says, they are Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. You see, Israel got everything. All of the blessings. Their table is full of it. But all of those blessings became a snare and a trap. God's law was meant to show them how sinful they were, to repent, to believe in God in faith. And instead, that blessing of the covenants and the law, they took it and they said, yeah, I can do that. I'll be righteous. I'll do everything in which I need to do to be reunited to God. Those covenants and that law, which was a blessing, turned into a curse. It is the reason which, why they cannot see. They are seeking righteousness through works of the law. And Paul says, it's no good. It's not going to get you anywhere. The blessings of God became a curse. They became a stumbling block and retribution for them. The table that was meant for blessing became their curse. And not only that, it darkened their eyes. 
They could not see. They could not understand. What does it mean to be righteous? Paul says it's by faith. Israel says, as a whole, generally speaking, I don't know what you're talking about. I've got the law. I've got the covenant. That's how I'm finding my righteousness. I'm going to be a good person, and that's where I'm going to find righteousness. This is still true today. This is what every other major world religion believes. Just be a good person, and you'll, you'll earn your way into heaven. I hear it all the time in my job. I meet people and say, well, you know, I'm just, that's, I'm just trying to be a good person. And they name off the big three, right? Didn't cheat on my spouse, didn't kill anybody, didn't rob a bank. I guess I'm good. This is not the standard by which we are accepted into heaven. Jesus says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, if anybody in here is doing that, you don't need to come back next week, right? If you are perfect, you've got, you, you've got it under control. But if you're not, you are not going to find your righteousness in being a good, a good person. That's how we define it. Jesus doesn't just say, be a good person. He says, be perfect. If you are not perfect, you need Jesus. The Jews didn't understand this. The blessing of the law became a curse. It bent their backs forever. It was weighed heavy on them to the point where they could not walk upright. Spiritually speaking, they were weighed down by this, and they said, I don't know what to do. There's six, seven hundred, eight hundred laws, and I'm trying to follow them all, and I'm doing everything I can, and I'm only taking 25 steps on Sunday, and I'm doing all the things that I'm supposed to be doing, but it's killing them. And this, ladies and gentlemen, is the beauty of the gospel. God gives a blessing and it becomes a curse, and Jesus takes that curse and makes it a blessing again. The things that Israel had turned upside down, the blessings that were meant that became a curse, Jesus comes and says, I'm going to take your curse and I'm going to make it a blessing again for you. He sets everything right. You see, Jesus didn't come and say, ah, forget the law. We don't need that thing. No, he says, I came and I fulfilled it perfectly. All of those rules and laws that you're trying to follow, stop. Because Jesus fulfilled every single one of them perfectly. And then, in his perfection, went to the cross and allowed our sin, our guilt, our shame to be dumped onto him. All of your sin is then sacrificed with Jesus on the cross. He dies, he comes back to life three days later. And that same life and resurrection that he experienced, he offers to everybody who believes. Everybody who confesses with their mouth that Jesus is Lord will be saved, right? That's what we saw in Romans 10. It's as simple as it gets. Believe in your heart, confess with your mouth, and you will be saved. That curse that turned into a blessing, now Jesus has turned it back into a blessing. He took on the curse of your sin and my sin so that we could be saved. The only thing he requires is that you bow your knee, repent, and believe in him. All right, let's pray. Father God, you see into our hearts. Father, we look at this Example of Elijah, and we would have done no better. Probably would have done far worse. We are so sinful and evil 
And yet you have chosen to save us anyways. For that, Father, we are grateful. Thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you that he was able to take the curse and turn it back into a blessing as it's always meant to be. That he turned everything back right. That he fixed all of the things that humanity, that the nation of Israel, that all the other nations on the planet had broken. Father, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Anybody in this room who is not saved, Lord, I pray that you would reveal yourself to them. Lord, that that everyone here this morning who, who is not a believer would bow the knee right now, repent and believe. Father, we love you. We thank you for this wonderful blessing that we have in Christ. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.